0: You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. You know, back when uh, I was in college, which was a long, long time ago, seems to get longer even as we hit 2015, I'm like, yeah, that was a while ago. That was a little bit ago. But when I was back in college, uh, we didn't have cell phones yet. And uh, we loved doing different kind of uh, pranks. And at the school I attended... Um, we found the beautiful invention of the water balloon launcher. How many of you have ever used a water balloon launcher? Okay, they are an amazing instrument. You get that surgical tubing, you get a funnel, you get two people to hold it, one on either side like this and one on the other side like this. You get a third person to grab that funnel, pull it back, hold it down and launch that water balloon and it will go like literally like 300 yards. And it is just unbelievable. Well, we decided that uh, our school as people were driving in on the main road and as you got to where the dorms were at, at our school, they put in one of these speed bumps and it wasn't like a, hey, here's a speed bump, just slow down a little bit. It was one of those, if you don't slow down, you're gonna get high centered speed bumps. You know the kind I'm talking about? Just like this massive mound of asphalt kind of speed bump. And so everybody would come in, would have to like, you know, they'd zoom in, they'd slow down and they'd go over this thing and then they'd park in the student parking before they got to the dorms. Well, right next to that speed bump was a phone booth. And we all of a sudden thought, you know what, we would love to use the water balloon launcher. And as cars come in to that speed bump, we would love to hit them with a water balloon. And so one afternoon, we got a couple of friends and we stood out there and we mapped out, we did our math homework, we mapped out exactly where you had to hold the the surgical tubing, and where you had to pull it back to, and we made a mark on our lawn, like where they stand, and back here where, you know, you hold the funnel to, and if you do that exactly, and you put the water balloon in and launch it, the water balloon will land exactly four feet behind the speed bump, which, if you take the trajectory, becomes right in the middle of anyone's windshield. Okay, so we would send, we didn't have cell phones at the time, so we would send a friend down and they would go inside the phone booth and then we would pull our phone out and set it on a little wall in front of our dorm and we'd put on speakerphone and we would call and they would make sure, because there were these large trees we had to launch over, they would make sure it wasn't like campus security. You know, we didn't want to get like actually, you know, hit them. So what would happen is cars would come in and be like, all right, there's like a gray Honda coming in right now. All right, ready, launch and go. And then they'd be like, direct hit, direct hit, you know, and we'd be like, ah. And it was awesome, and then what we'd do is we'd just set the phone down, and by the time people came down to where our dorm was, hundreds of yards away, we'd just be sitting out there, and we'd just watch them. They're, like, looking around the parking lot. They're looking at their windshield and, you know, it, everything. It was just, and we'd hit car after car after car. And pretty soon, we would get, like, people who were, like, followers. Like, when we started pulling out the surgical tubing and stuff, they'd, like, all come out, and we'd have to be like, you guys, you got to, like, spread yourselves out. There can't be this crowd you know, here it becomes pretty obvious who's doing it if the whole crowd gathers right around where we're doing. And one day, this, we had this really tall basketball player in our dorm, and he came back one day, and we were, I was all excited. I was really excited as, a, as a, even a freshman. I was like, hey, you know, this massively tall guy. And I'm like, I got to tell you, like, it was so awesome what we did. And, and I explained the whole thing to him, and I told him like, how awesome it was. And he goes, don't tell me, show me. So we're like, oh, we like scramble, we grab the stuff, you know, we launch water balloons out there, we show them, it was really awesome. But that statement always stuck with my mind. Don't tell me, show me. Here's a basketball player, a guy who's got to perform on the athletic field and he, on the athletic court in his situation, and he basically would have a coach who would say, that's great, all your talk is great. But until you practice and carry out what you've practiced and do it, Don't tell me, show me. I'm glad that you understand the concept. I'm glad that you get the idea, but actually follow through and do it. You know, it's interesting. Have you noticed that our culture is getting more intense? Everything is escalating in intensity. Basically, in every arena, the goal is to just escalate it. Doesn't matter what it is. It might be to shatter the current quarterly sales goal, not just beat it, but let's try to shatter that sales goal. Push the speed envelope. Automate everything. So don't just have it, but now automate everything. Handle the pressure. And our culture is weird, it goes from simply doing things and enjoying that experience to actually being admired for what you've done and being followed. You know, I, I think musicians who uh, used to play instruments and, uh, and they're, they're coming back into, they want to do like a reunion album. They're going to have this weird experience at concerts. Because when they come back, they're going to be used to cr- the crowd being like, yeah, and singing their songs and having a great experience. And, you know, just looking up at them and they're going to come up to a crowd and the whole crowd's going to be like this with their phone. Just watching them the whole time and just looking at them and just like, fil- it's like filming the experience to share it instead of experiencing it. We're escalating our intensity on almost every level. The truth is told. You and I, we want to be favorites. We want to be admired. We want to be followed. And truthfully, we want to show favoritism to others. We want to choose who do we follow, who do we favor, who would we like to get closer to. But James shows us that in the church, There is no place for favoritism. If you have your Bible, open with me to James chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. James says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you sit over there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Let me just pause right there. What he's saying is when we're showing favoritism, there is a judgment. And our actions prove that the mental judgment that went on was evil, that we would tell a poor person to sit at our feet or sit over there or don't be near me. goes on and says this, "'Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. "'Has not God chosen those who are poor "'in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith "'and to inherit the kingdom He promised "'for those who love Him? "'But you have dishonored the poor. "'Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? "'Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? "'Are they not the ones who are blaspheming "'the noble name of Him to whom you belong?' If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. So speak, And act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Isn't that interesting? In James' day, the poor would always be kept in that poor position. And therefore, they would be exploited by those who were rich and had power. Uh, What became completely absent in a society like that for the average poor person or the average middle income person, what became absent in that culture was hope. Hope was gone. Our culture thrives in hope. We have these great stories of maybe a disabled person who becomes very inspirational to the rest of culture because of the obstacles that they overcame and just how great their life has been. Those kind of stories didn't exist in this time. If you were disabled and poor, you were there to be exploited, to be abused. Maybe somebody would throw you Often had to resort to begging. The poor person who had overcome those obstacles and escalate uh, their intensity and walk through hard circumstances, but eventually elevate their status. Maybe they become a politician. Maybe they become a great leader of a company, but they started off in poverty. Those stories did not exist in this day. The poor were there. To be looked down upon and to be exploited, so that the rich could become more rich. Hope was non existent. And that's why the message of Jesus changed everything. Here comes a man who comes along and he heals the blind, he heals those who are sick. He changes the status of almost every person. He engages with women in that society that were looked upon as property. And he would engage them and he valued them and honored them and elevated their position to that of even being a follower, a disciple of him as the Messiah. He healed the disabled. He elevated the poor. And he died for the sins of every person so that there could be hope beyond this life. And that's why favoritism, James is saying, this change should not exist in the church. That outside, Jesus has changed the dynamic. So what is normal in our culture should not exist as normal inside the fellowship, whether it's in a home or in a synagogue or in a church of the people of Jesus Christ. See, favoritism is a little weird to me. Because it would seem like you should show everybody favoritism, right? You should just favor everybody. But favoritism seems to punish us for showing particular favor to others. Well, discrimination, on the other hand, is actually intentionally withholding favor from somebody because of your belief, or your judgment on them. And what James is saying is, in this situation, both favoritism and discrimination are happening in the church because of social status and because... What is normal in the culture is being drug into the normal practices in the church. And there is no place for that. Each of those requires a judgment. But when Christ followers make a judgment, James is saying, when you and I look at people, when, when you came in here today and you chose who to sat sit next to, and, and if you got in early and you were seated and someone came and sat fairly close to you, uh, you, you need to like that because they made a judgment that you were okay to sit by right? So if you were like first in the row, that, good news. If there's other people there, that, that's helpful to you because they, they said, this one's all right. All right, we'll sit with them. But you and I, when we make a decision, when we choose to whom we show favor, we make a judgment. And James is saying in our thinking, to keep our inner thoughts, our inner motivations of the heart from being evil thoughts that lead to evil actions, he says we need to change our thinking so that our actions result and prove that we chose mercy. Some of us like to drive. How many of you pull up behind a, you know, you got three rows of cars, you're traveling down Up Grove Boulevard, and you got three rows, and you come up to a stoplight, and as you're coming into the stoplight, you judge and evaluate the cars ahead of you as to which ones are gonna be the fastest. Yes, thank you, thank you. As do I. You look at the make and model. I don't know. I would love to see, you know, forget like people saying like, what happens when we sleep? No one cares. You know, what we really need to do is hook up those modules on our brain and say, what happens at that moment that you're pulling up? Because I'm sure that every transistor in our brains is just absolutely firing to decide which, you know, your are can make a model and driver. And all of a sudden you might pull up behind the finest car. And then all of a sudden you realize you've made an error in judgment. Because as you pull up behind this fast sports car, you realize you cannot see the driver, which means they might be very elderly, maybe even shrunken down, and you might be the last one to take off from the red stoplight. We make judgments all the time, and sometimes it shows that our thinking, our judging, shows favoritism, and at times is even equal. And James is saying, when it comes to the church, we're not to act like the outside world. When it comes to rich and poor and male and female, we're not to act like the outside world. We are to be ones who are called by God into relationship with Him. He has shown us mercy. He has completed the Old Testament law. He has fulfilled it. And having fulfilled it, He gives us mercy. Now, mercy is interesting. Mercy is when you deserve something bad and you don't get it. So that would be like, parents, you know your son or daughter has done something wrong, you've talked it through with them, they know it's wrong, they expect that punishment, and you say, you know what, instead of giving you punishment, um, I'm just gonna let it go. Grace is different. Grace says, your son or daughter did something wrong, we've talked it through, you know that you did something wrong, and instead of giving you the punishment you deserve, I'm gonna give you a gift you don't deserve. In our judgment, our judgment and resulting actions should prove that as we begin to think, and as we begin to judge, and as we begin to process, our actions result in showing mercy, equality. That James says, the rich who seem to be in our world in elevated position, are humbled by trials and tests and temptations that the low are in humble circumstances but God exalts them because they're already in humble circumstances that he is a great equalizer and trials and tests and temptations are equalizing experiences the Old Testament law did not give freedom do you realize that the Old Testament law was pretty simple it gave indebtedness it was you did wrong you owe That's what the Old Testament law did. It gave indebtedness. But James is saying, encouraging us to follow what Christ did by fulfilling the Old Testament law and now giving us a law of freedom. You have received the generosity of God. Now you're free to give mercy generously. And it's going to show up in what you and I do. Mark Foreman states this. He says, The implication is that God's desire and will has not been occurring in our broken lives and our fractured communities. But now it must. The great restorer of all things is near. Right is coming to correct wrong. Healing is coming to overcome sickness. Justice is coming to right injustice. Provision is coming to the poor. All that is broken on earth must be made whole in the presence of the king himself. See, when the kingdom of God comes, its work changes everything. The church itself is not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, Christ came, and before the church was set up, he said the kingdom of God is here. In other words, the work of the kingdom has come to earth, and its effect will go through everything. And the kingdom of God is at work in you, and the kingdom of God is at work in me. But the kingdom of God and the kingdom work can be resisted in you and me when we show favoritism. When we become evil thinking or speaking or doing judges. This is the kingdom of God at work in the church and among the followers of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God, it invades every area of our lives. Any church full of people who've received forgiveness, received in their mind heaven, but retain the right to be unforgiving, selfish, divisive, hateful, greedy, is extremely dangerous. See, that's not the kingdom of God come all the way through us. It's saying, I retain the right to experience heaven. I retain the right to experience forgiveness. Thank you, God, for that. But I refuse, I choose to retain the right to be hateful, greedy, angry, bitter, selfish. We are to instead be transformed. And we are to be the example for anyone wondering what does wholeness in Jesus, what can that do for a person's life? See, the people around us ought to see us not as perfect, but the people around us ought to see us being perfected. And what I mean by that is this, that that people around us ought to see a continual, ongoing sensitivity, humility to the word of God and to his work of the kingdom of God in and through us, that they're seeing change, that they're saying, why should I be made whole in Jesus? Why would belief in Jesus do anything for me? because they look at your life, they don't see perfection. They would say, I never can attain that. But as they look at your life, they would begin to say, I see someone who's teachable, who's willing to engage, who's willing to grow, and someone who must have received mercy because in their judgments, they're showing mercy to others. There has never been a more powerful king There has never been a larger kingdom than the kingdom of God. There has never been a greater demand on the subjects of the kingdom. There's never been a greater promise of wholeness ever offered in the history of the world, but that through Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. But let me ask, is this the gospel you've been preached? Is this the gospel you've received? Or was the gospel you received the right to receive forgiveness in heaven but retain for yourself anger, bitterness, greed, jealousy, envy. Is the gospel you receive faith without surrender? Or Is there an ongoing surrender that the kingdom of God is overtaking your kingdom of your life and your heart and your soul as God begins to work in our will to conform our defiant, selfish, fleshly will more and more into his likeness? That's the work of the gospel in us. That's being transformed. Soren Kierkegaard said this, a personal existential decision has been forced upon us and to believe is not a mere mental assent. It is a personal trusting surrender of my whole being to the coming and commanding king. Faith is not just a mental assent of belief, but there is surrender involved before the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning I want to challenge you no matter how long you have walked with Jesus, no matter if you're exploring faith, no matter if you're here for the first time and you're like, I'm just getting used to this idea. I'm just exploring these things for myself. I'm thinking them through for myself. I'm exploring who Jesus is. We're so glad you're here. There's the best place to be able to do that. But no matter how long you've walked with Christ or whether you're in the exploration phase, I want you to evaluate your faith condition. Is your faith, an ongoing transforming work as God's kingdom works in you and through you are you and I do we participate with the kingdom of God come to earth. And oftentimes it comes through us and becomes evident to those around us. Evaluate your faith condition. the great Blondin crossed the Niagara River on a tightrope and he walked across the thing, all the way across, and the crowd cheered, and he turned around, and he walked all the way back, and the crowd cheered again before him, and he, then he grabbed a wheelbarrow, and he took the wheelbarrow, and he pushed the wheelbarrow across the tightrope, all the way across the Niagara, and the crowd went nuts, and then he came across, and he walked back, and he said, he said, how many of you believe that I could do this with a man in the wheelbarrow, and the crowd absolutely went absolutely nuts, and they literally started saying, we believe, we believe. And then he said, who will get in the wheelbarrow? (laughs) And literally, there was silence, and within a few moments, no crowd. Literally, true story. Evaluate your faith condition. We believe. We believe. We just sang that song about believing in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. But is the kingdom of God overriding and working through our kingdom into the world around us? James says one of the first areas that shows up is in whether or not we show favoritism, it's in our actions. Basically, James is saying, don't tell me, show me. He's writing to Jewish people who felt like we believe that there's a Messiah to come and he's challenging their belief to say that Messiah is Jesus. And now that you believe Jesus, don't go back simply to the Old Testament law. Now that you believe in Jesus, Christ has fulfilled that law. Now you begin to let the kingdom of God work through you and it plays out in your judgments on other people. Jesus says, that the kingdom of God has come to invade our lives. It's total surrender. It's not passive belief. Favoritism is interesting because it's sought out as much as it's given, especially in our culture, right? You want to be everybody's favorite. And sometimes in the church, favoritism has a vaulting ambition side to it. It's not a noble ambition, it's a vaulting ambition and in a lot of years, a lot of different churches and ministry, here's one of the things that I've come to realize, that sometimes those who demand the most from the church actually sacrifice the least for the church. We become well-intentioned consumers instead of spiritual contributors. And that's why sometimes it's so hard, because as the kingdom of God begins to work in and through us, it's going to stir up things that we're sad, mad, and glad about. And sometimes the things that you and I get sad, mad, and glad about, God is stirring up because, not because he wants the church to start a new program to do it, but because he's calling you to begin to act and judge in those ways that your mercy is extended in that area. But what happens, we're in such a society that we pass off education of our children to the education system and we we pass off the morals for our children to the church and we pass off the behavioral expectations in our culture to the prison systems and the police enforcement and everything else and and we absolve ourselves of any responsibility. But we are not spiritual consumers, we are spiritual consumers contributors. The church doesn't exist for us. We are the church and we exist for the world to bring hope into those arenas where there's just simply hopelessness. The kingdom of God invades and overrides our individual kingdoms and our individual preferences. So we need to evaluate our faith condition. Let me ask, who are you among the crowd of worshipers? Are you one who says, we believe, we believe you can do it. But there's no faith backing up your words. James is saying, don't tell me, show me. Who are you among the crowd of worshipers? Has the kingdom of God moved you to faith that is now becoming more and more accompanied by action? See, it's interesting because the argument for faith, you can't, by the way, prove faith. Otherwise, it would cease to be faith, right? By its very nature, you can't. The argument for faith is really the argument for the evidence of faith. Show me that you believe. Give evidence for the fact that you are, in fact, a believer. Give evidence that the kingdom of God is willing to work against your will. Auth- actions authenticate our faith, but they can't create it or earn it, right? Right? You can't pretend your way into heaven. But our actions authenticate what we already believe. And I believe in your life or your job or in your patterns or in your faith, it's easier to slide into complacency than it is to elevate your intensity. Let me ask this question. What evidence do you have to convict you of being a Christ follower? What evidence do you have to convict you of being a Christian? Hopefully, there's lots of evidence that the kingdom of God is beginning to work against my pride and my inner man and beginning to transform me that outwardly, by the judgments I'm making, being conformed into a God who gives graciously, that I'm one who will show mercy. And you too, and those are the evidences that validate the faith. That we believe. James goes on in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, I have faith, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. In other words, my actions are authenticating the faith that I have, right? You believe there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that. And their response is that they shudder. They believe so strongly that there's a reaction to their belief. And for the demons, it's that they shudder. They are under the power of the name of Jesus. And they know who he is. And they've seen him face to face. And they understand that they are opposed to him. And there's a reaction they cannot help. James says, you foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were actually working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not faith alone. Let me just pause right there. The interesting thing about the story of Abraham, some of you are familiar with it, some of you aren't. But Abraham believed God and the scriptures say that his belief in God, it was credited to him as righteousness. That his belief preceded his salvation or his right standing. And at that point he had done nothing righteous. But one of the outpourings is that when God said, Abraham, I want you to go and sacrifice your one and only son whom God gave to them after years of waiting and Abraham grabs his son and they walk up this mountain and they get to the top and his son goes, Dad, where's, where's the sacrifice? We got the wood and stuff, but where's, where's like the burnt offering, the sacrifice? And Abraham says, son, the Lord will provide as he's binding up his son's hands and his feet. He picks up this boy and he lays him on the altar. And Abraham, this makes no sense, but he believes God and he picks up the knife and he's going to go to sacrifice his son and the angel of God shows up and stops him and says, your action has proven that your faith is what is real and it's credited to you as righteousness. Look over there in the thorns, I have a ram who is ready to be sacrificed. And so his son is let down off the altar and God provided a sacrifice, but he was tried, he was tested, he was tempted. And in that, God said, your faith was validated. It was credited to you as righteousness. Verse 25, in the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without resulting deeds is dead. He gives a second illustration, a story that, again, the story of Abraham, all the Jewish people that he's writing to, they would understand this. The story of Rahab, all the Jewish people who would be reading this letter from James, they would understand that story. Her story is that as the Hebrew spies came in off the desert, crossed the Jordan River, and were going to the town of Jericho, where eventually the walls fell down, That as they're going into Jericho, that the spies went in there and she gave them lodging and she believed that their God was more powerful than her nation's gods. And when they came to capture those Hebrew slaves, she let them out and helped them escape. And when the town of Jericho was taken, she and her family were saved. By the way, Rahab, the prostitute, is a great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus Christ. What you've done until this point doesn't prohibit your standing with God. In his judgment, you can find mercy. See, before becoming a follower of Jesus Christ, it's not about actions. You can't earn your way into being saved. So beforehand, it's not about actions. But afterwards, it's all about actions because what happens is authentic faith produces surrender and surrender to the work of the kingdom of God is evidenced by our actions. So before becoming a believer, no, it is not not a works-based salvation, not at all. Afterwards, though, because of an authentic faith, the kingdom of God begins to work in us and through us. And guess what? Our actions change. So it, there is that level that we honor our God as we work and are transformed by his Holy Spirit. Let me ask you this If Jesus came to you and said, Did you care for my bride? The church. Did you sacrifice for her? Did you volunteer? Did you do the work of the church out among non-believers? Were you the church? Were you part of my bride? Is your life evidenced by a love for the church, the messy you know, church that sometimes wounds people, that sometimes encourages people beyond their greatest doubt? I mean, just sometimes the church is a messy place, but you know what? It's the institution that God chose to allow the kingdom of God to come to earth as it came through Christ to continue to work on earth through us. Did you care for the poor in other nations? Or did you take everything and spend it on yourself? And in doing so, neglect the poor. Our nation, what is normal in our nation, was normal in James' day. That the poor were to be exploited Sometimes they're just exploited out of selfishness for ourselves. Listen, I gotta tell you something. Deeds without daily faith, that's really difficult. You and I need to walk with the Lord in obedience to his word daily. We need to walk with him and be challenged by the kingdom of God daily because we live our kingdom daily and it needs to come into conflict at times and there are times that my kingdom needs to subject itself entirely to his kingdom. But if I'm trying to do deeds, if I'm trying to be good, if I'm trying to overcome trials and tests and temptation but I'm not walking with Jesus in daily faith, it's really, really difficult. And this year, God is calling you back to escalate your intensity spiritually, to walk with him in daily faith, to be in his word, to begin to respond to him. Because trying to behave and do good and be right and hold some status is really difficult without daily faith. And you need that with the Lord. Sun Grove Church, this year, we're going to increase our intensity. And how? We go and serve and love and care for the least of these worldwide. This year, we're going to surrender to the kingdom of God working in and through us as we take God's Holy Spirit into new areas that elevate our intensity. And this year, I want you to begin to ask yourself, to make this statement to yourself, as you begin to coach yourself, as you begin to respond to God's Holy Spirit, that you would say, listen, self, don't tell me. Show me. Let's live out what we believe. Let's elevate our spiritual intensity. Let's walk more closely with Jesus, because as we do, he will work more strongly through you and through me. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, just thinking about your own life at this moment. Some of you believed in Jesus for a long time. And he may be just drawing you. The scriptures say that when we draw close to God, he draws near to us. And today, his heart is here. He just wants to draw you closer. And if your heart is willing to humble itself and draw close to him, man, God is already right there waiting for you. And he wants to participate in the work of your life this year. Some of you in the room have realized, I've never come to the point of faith. I've never come to authentic faith. I've said even at times I believe, but I've never surrendered. I've never surrendered my life to Jesus, and maybe today is that day for you. And if so, will you pray a prayer like this? Just right where you're seated after me, just pray, Jesus, today I give myself to you. I ask you to forgive me of my sin and to cleanse me of all the wrong things I've ever done. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin and that you rose to new life, that you are God. And I ask you to show me mercy and then to show others mercy through me. Today, Jesus, I'm saying yes to you. If you prayed that prayer today and you meant it, would you just raise up your hand? Anywhere around the room, we got some people who'd like to give you some information. If you made that decision, just hold your hand high, they'll find you if you're able to do that at this time. Awesome. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful for what you're doing in us. God, you're just sweet to draw us gently and to call us to yourself, to just remind us to come back and walk more closely with you. God, I pray that in our judgments this week, we would be ones who show mercy because mercy triumphs over judgment, and that our actions would show that we have been transformed because we've received mercy greatly. We need to be merciful to others. We love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for the work you're doing in us and the work you're doing through us, even as a body and as a church. God, thank you that when we give and we surrender, we tithe, a portion of that goes to offset those who are poor and oppressed and in bondage around our world. God, we're grateful to have the chance to do that. Thank you for working through the individual gifts of each person in this room. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.